I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. To start off the show, I'm super lucky to be joined in the studio by Joey Zwillinger, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of Allbirds. And I'm going to let Joey talk about what Allbirds is all about. Joey, thanks for coming in. I'm thrilled to be here. I love what you guys do and think you do a wonderful job. So can't wait. All right. Thanks so much. I'm going to point our listeners to your website. You've got a great domain, just allbirds.com. We don't need to spell it. We don't need to say there are hyphens or no hyphens. It's just the two words. Try to keep it simple. And birds. Keep yeah. it simple. Allbirds.com. Joey, give us the, oh, and one other bit of disclosure. Although I don't think you were my student. You are a Wharton grad. So Wharton yes. grad 20, 2010. Yep, 2010. S- seems like yesterday, but uh, it's been a few years. Or now. two decades ago, however <laughs> you look at it. <laughs> all right, Joey, give us the elevator pitch for all birds. Uh, I'll keep this one very brief and and really from a, from a consumer perspective because I think uh, the investor pitch is a little less interesting. We, we set out to make the most comfortable shoe in the world. And, um, and what we did to do that was strip away every single detail of a current construction of a shoe that is unnecessary and either takes away for comfort or is focused on dropping cost or doing something else that's unrelated to our customer. And then we engineered and innovated a fabric, uh, where we packed in fibers from the Merino sheep that are about 20% of the width of a human hair that are typically used in $5,000 suits. And we engineered a fabric that was strong enough to make into a, into a fabric that could be an upper of a shoe. That's the, that's the part that's above your foot. And, and we, we constructed what we think is a great shoe and we did it, uh, in a way that was incredibly sustainable for the planet. And that has so far resonated really well with people. And it turns out we were, we were right when we, when we thought that people bought casual shoes for comfort. That's the number one reason. And Lo and behold, that is that is that has happened. All right. Well, um, I we first met a little more than a year ago when you spoke to my class, and you made the pitch to me that I really ought to be wearing Allbirds. So I I bought a few pairs over over the last year. Which I appreciate. Uh, we're we've got at least two pairs in the studio right now, you and me. Yeah. So uh, let's describe and and one of the things we'll get into in a, a little bit is that you've kept the product line pretty simple. So let's start with your main main item which i think is called the wool runner mm-hmm. correct tell us what that tell our listeners what that shoe looks like describe the shoe for us yeah sure i think it's um <clears throat> it's a sneaker first of all it's a lace-up sneaker uh, i think it it uh it doesn't you know most sneakers if you're thinking about an athletic running shoe have more or less the same uh, silhouette if you were if you were to black it out and mm-hmm. just look at the shape around it and i think we don't fit too far apart from that but um the unique thing about our shoe and the wool runner is that we have one seam in the upper. Mm-hmm. So we've constructed this incredibly beautiful uh, textile out of merino wool. Uh, and and we've, we've then created an upper pattern. And, and this is typically done where you have a 2D piece of fabric, you cut a pattern into it, and, and then you, you roll that around a 3D form, which is called the last. Mm-hmm. And, and then you sew it together or, or oh. use some other kind of construction. So what's unique about using one seam is that, A, it's really expensive um, to use just one seam. It's not a lot of optimization of material yield. And, and the reason why we, f- we did that is because seams are actually pretty uncomfortable, if you're, particularly if you're going to use it without socks. 
Um, our, our upper is this melange, which is kind of like a flecked color, mm-hmm. uh, where we have different colors of, of merino wool embedded into our textile. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty unique when you see it on the street. Uh, it's got a, a very lightweight but high compression set, which means it's uh, very comfortable and rebounds really well on the bottom. And that's made from a castor bean oil-based polyurethane. Mm-hmm. And then we have an EVA, EVA bottom. Okay. All right. So uh, if I were to feed that back to you, I, I would say, I, I, I know why you say it's a running shoe, because that is the profile. That is effectively what it looks like yeah. in, in profile. But if you were to look at it in shadow, let's say, but it, it, it lacks all of the hoopla. Of a, of a running shoe, right? I mean, in the sense that I wouldn't, I don't think of myself as wearing a run, running shoe when I'm, when I'm putting my Allbirds on to go to the office. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and definitionally it is not a running shoe. Right. It is yeah. a casual get around the city shoe. Yeah. I think, and, and you alluded to it uh, in, in your previous question about, we came out with, a, with very little fanfare. It was, it was one shoe. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a pretty strange thing to do if you consider us a fashion business, which frankly I don't. Um, but what, what was, what was interesting is, is we looked at, uh, we looked at what, what typically happens in running shoes and non-running shoe casual markets. You go into a shoe store and you're, you're typically faced with, with the option of about 200 varieties of shoes, mm-hmm. sometimes much more than that. And the, the choices are pretty overwhelming. And, and beyond that, every single one is trying to pop off the shelf by putting a really colorful logo, a shiny, a shiny piece of fabric on the side some paint on the outsole, something kind of crazy that, that really is more designed to, uh, to catch your attention on the mm-hmm. shelf or to bring your attention to the brand. And this, it's interesting. It kind of stems uh, from that point that we decided to start this company. The original curiosity really came from my co-founder, who was a professional athlete, and he, uh, he was the, the vice captain of the New Zealand national soccer team mm-hmm. through the World Cup in 2010. And he got an offer from the athletic shoe company who was sponsoring him at the time that if him and his and his teammates wore this really bright yellow version of their shoe uh, on TV all at the same time, they'd all get paid an extra bonus. And it was kind of like, you know, it's it's pretty clear what they're engineering for when, when they propose something like that. And I think the same thing is what consumers perceive when they walk into a shoe store or an online shoe store, Zappos.com or anything like that where you, you go on there and, and you're faced with this kind of paralyzing uh, choice. It's, there's just too many. Mm-hmm. And, and we said, what do we do if we make the sneaker that's going to be, or the shoe, in this case a sneaker, that's going to be the one solution to what you actually want to use it for? We're not engineering for the marathon runner or the professional athlete on the track. We're looking at the everyday person who has changed their lifestyle completely. They have started to work not just nine to five, but from nine till the end of the day, they're working on the weekends, it's all mobile. So you're blending your personal activities with your work. And when you do that, you need a, a apparel that fits for a much broader slate of activities. Mm-hmm. And you also need a shoe that's going to be a lot more comfortable because you can't just, you know, walk around in your uncomfortable leather shoes for uh, throughout all these kinds of activities huffing around the city. And so, you know, we looked and said, okay, that's what people are using shoes for. What should, how should we make the shoe that actually works for that? And we, we felt that the industry had overlooked that people were, were kind of stealing athletic shoes and using them in, in this use case, but it wasn't appropriate in the workplace. It wasn't appropriate in dinners or lots of other activities because there's lots of logos on the side, as you, mm-hmm. as you said. So we, we kind of stripped all that away. 
And the whole philosophy of the company in product development is we take away everything that's unnecessary. And it's pretty clear that, that logos are not necessary for comfort. They don't add something to the consumer. Um, so we, we focused on really an anonymous kind of luxury, which is stripping everything away that's unnecessary and making it beautifully simple and making it stand out because of that simplicity. We engineered everything for, for comfort. And we felt that the best way to do that was to, was to only use very renewable and sustainable materials. And that's kind of the broader purpose of our company is really to, to curate the best of nature and, and using kind of green chemistry and other tools that we have at our disposal to make amazing materials that create comfort experiences that people will celebrate and share with their friends. Yeah. You know, there's something really curious about the Allbirds phenomenon. And, and I've experienced it myself as, you know, I wear them pretty regularly, probably 30, 40% of the time. And what's striking to me is that people routinely ask, hey, what are those shoes? They ask me what those shoes are. And yet what's striking about that is there's nothing on the shoe that draws your attention to it. So as you point out, most shoes out there are like fishing lures. They're yeah. designed to draw attention. And it's the fact that it doesn't draw attention that draws attention. Yeah. And so it's a very, it's sort of paradoxical. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's what people want now. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it's, it's a, it's clear that people want to be, they're on their feet more and they're using it for different activities. I, I will say that the, the textile that we engineered has a pretty unique, uh, I'd say a three dimensional aspect to mm -hmm. it where, the way that we knit it, uh, we actually knit the knit the yarn um, from merino wool and and turn it into a fabric that has quite a texture that does stand out. And we put lots of pops of colors, you know. And I'm looking at your feet, and you're wearing you're wearing red shoes that are um, <laughs> reddish brown, which are a pretty unique color, yeah. and they have this like dark texture to it. And it does stand out, but in a way that's like really beautifully simple. It's yeah. not in a way that stands out because it's got a huge logo on the side, which is which is. I would say unappealing and, and pretty typical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I actually that's I, that's a good insight. The material, although in retrospect you look at it and say what could be simpler than sort of a matte flecked wool fabric, uh, and yet it isn't leather, and so it's it is distinctive. Right, and, yeah. and and what that's translated to for us from a business perspective is that seventy percent of our business comes from people telling their friends or stumbling upon yeah. it, as they would say in a survey in the street, and so you know you you could. You could think about that. What does to um, to our economics of our business? It's really positive, and it's also, you know, what what other way would you like to learn about a product than um, having your friend tell you that it's it's what you should be wearing thirty yeah. to forty percent of your time at, at minimum? I would say mine's about ninety to one hundred. <laughs> well, you you better be yeah. wearing it more than ninety percent. Yeah, Joey, take us back to the beginning. How'd you get into the shoe business? Uh, yeah, it's a, a bit of a wild ride. You, you know, the inspiration from the idea, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was it was really from my from my co-founder who is a New Zealand native and I think with a ratio of 6 to 1 sheep to people in New Zealand you start looking at enough of those those guys and you, you think you got to do something with wool <laughs> um but but really seriously he he did he did kind of have an experience as an athlete where he was sponsored by um by a couple different companies at different periods of time and and realized that there really wasn't something out there that that met his needs off the field and everything had big logos and he didn't really love that um so, you know, he, he kind of uh, had a slow iteration and, you know, sometimes people ask me, uh, you call it a phenomenon, which I, which I, I do, um, I appreciate that kind <laughs> word. And it does kind of sometimes look like an overnight success to people, but this thing takes a long time and it dates back to 
probably 2012 when Tim got a research grant from the New Zealand government or the wool, the wool, a primary sector of the New Zealand government. And, and he started to put together his first fabric, which took two years mm. in the way he was doing it at the time. And, and then that there was a slow iteration, an early version, early prototype put on Kickstarter. And throughout this period of time, I was kind of in the midst of, of a, a 10 to 15 year uh, fight to use the, or, or journey, I should rather say, to use the dynamic nature of the private sector to make a positive impact on the environment. So I, I previously, um, before I did my degree at Wharton, I, I was investing in small businesses, um, technology-enabled businesses, and looking at clean tech companies, as they were called at the time, um, kind of energy or materials focus using renewable sources. I then moved um, into a business, uh, which was at the time called Solazyme, and we were engineering small microbes to create, metabolize um, carbohydrates, sugar, and make performance chemicals and fuels. And I ended up running that business, uh, the chemical portion of the business, which was, which was um, a pretty large enterprise. We, we raised a billion and a half dollars in capital wow. as a company. And we, we had a manufacturing asset in Brazil that we sunk 250 million bucks into. And, and uh, what I realized during this period of time, and I'm out there, I'm doing collaborations with multinational chemical companies, with CPG companies, and, and sometimes trying to work with brands, even sneaker brands. And, and uh, what I found was that these big brands and, and the CPG companies, it all started kind of in the, in the late 1900s, 70s, 80s, whatever. And, and their positioning was all around something that was aspirational for the consumer. In the case of the big sneaker companies, it was sponsoring professional athletes and mm-hmm. being performance-oriented. And they were, uh, they were trying to opt- optimize for performance. And when I would go out there and I would try to pitch them a really innovative product to use in, their, in, their, in, in what they sold, uh, the answer was always <clears throat> interesting, but if it's not cheaper, not really interested in it, even if it really performs in a different way, which was quite a revelation and a light bulb moment for me. And I had a number of these. And so it started to feel like I was pushing string and trying to sell business to business uh, to, to, a, to a customer who really didn't care about sustainability. Mm-hmm. They cared about something else, whatever mm-hmm. that, that, that company was. And I realized that I needed to go downstream, create a brand, and do something that was amazingly uh, an amazingly good experience for consumers because of sustainable materials, not in spite of. And that's typically how the industry thinks, is that it's always in opposition. I mm-hmm. think that's a, a paradigm that's just wrong. And so <clears throat> we, Tim, Tim was working on, on, on the shoe, early shoe, shoe concept, excuse me, while I was kind of having this struggle. Mm-hmm. And, and our, our roads kind of came together in, mm-hmm. in uh, late 2014, early 2015, when our wives... Um, kind of encouraged us to get together. Our wives. So are, you were. So so you had a personal connection to Tim. Yeah, our, our wives are best friends, and uh, college roommates okay. at Dartmouth. So were you aware of what he was doing at the time? Oh sure, I was an early customer and yeah, friend yeah. of his, and helping yeah. him out on the yeah, side. Yeah, I mean, he he would he would call me for things here and there, but yeah. that, was, that was just a just to be you know. And so you like never thought, oh, you never. It was your wives that, that yeah. put the pieces together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They put the pieces together and. Um, and uh, Tim was living in London at the time. My family all left for the weekend, and Tim flew out early, early in 2015 from mm-hmm. London to my house. And I live just north of San Francisco in a town called Mill Valley, in Marin. 
And um, I uh, I now infamously cooked them a lamb stew. <laughs> and we, and we, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we, we walked around the hills of Mill Valley for, for about three days. Yeah. And, and we, it really clicked that we had something that we felt was, we had to do some work to really figure this more out. But uh, we felt like it was going to be a business where we could get together and feel excited about it for a decade. And we'd wake up out of our bed in 2024 or 2025, and we would be just as excited, if not more excited, than we were that day to start a business because it, it stood for something where we thought it was important for this company to yeah. exist, and it stood yeah. for something really important. And that, that's been, I think, incredibly powerful in developing this business um, in, its, in its early days, the, the success that we've enjoyed in the, that early period, and in recruiting an absolutely incredible team of what's now in our first um, – 18 months ago when we launched, we had, we had five people. Now we're about 80. Mm-hmm. So it's been a fast, fast um, growth of employees. And we wouldn't have attracted the talent without that kind of thing clicking for, for Tim and me. Yeah. You know, I want, want to ask you about, about the identification of this opportunity because I would say there are two schools of thought. One school of thought says you take an inventory of your skills and capabilities and you go systematically look for what's out there, maybe evaluate some of them, narrow them down, and then you pick the horse that you're going to ride off to success. And the other school of thought says, no, the the idea is find you. And it's your job just to recognize when this is the one. Uh, How how would you characterize your search? Were you looking for an opportunity? Was this an an example of the idea found you and you just had to do it? yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I do think people often have an entrepreneurial itch and, mm-hmm. and then it's just like, okay, let's go get it. And how do we do that? And it took, took me a long time. I mean, I knew I wanted to work in small entrepreneurial environments since when I was investing in small companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Solozyme that I joined was a small company. I was the like, you know, third, third or fourth business person at that company, um, 50, 50th or so employee. And <clears throat> and um, I knew I wasn't ready to start my own business, and I was seeking to do something that was quite complicated at the time, so I knew I was not a scientist. I couldn't start a, a business like that. And around the time when I started realizing that I, I wanted to do something different and had that revelation that doing something in a branded environment would be something that was sensible, I started looking at a, a few different businesses. I, I looked at um, a couple guys called me, for another biotech business that would sell renewable chemicals. Again, I saw my next decade just slogging along doing yeah. the same thing. So that one that one didn't work out. I looked at an infant nutrition business with a friend, and we, we uh, spent probably five, six months doing really detailed diligence on that business, figuring out whether we thought the economics and the structure we were doing with the technology we had could work, um, decided that it wouldn't work. And that's, you know, that's a tough thing to turn down. But um, when you realize how much energy and how much of your personal um, family life gets involved with the business and starting a business and your network that you throw, throw at these things, I think that the being cautious and having some trepidation before you jump is something that's important. And then when, when Tim and I got together, we, we kind of had this question where, okay, the market is enormous. Yeah. We knew that and we can talk about that later. But um, what we, what we, wondered was there's a little bit of data that says people like what happened in the Kickstarter. We know we're tapping into something. We don't mm-hmm. know how big it could be. Mm-hmm. And we started really talking about what that idea was to get a picture of whether there was a, a, a white space in the market mm-hmm. where we had we could own something that everyone was competing. It's an, everyone says shoes are so competitive. It's you know it's a 
two and a half billion pairs of shoes are bought and sold every year in the US. And there's so many companies out there doing it. But actually, it turns out that in the way we were looking at it, everyone was doing competing at the same with the same approach. And so Mm -hmm. just tweaking the approach a little bit, and you can actually stand out quite a bit. So we got a lot of conviction that there was this white space focused on beautifully simple design, de-logoed and whatnot, focus on comfort and enabling that with renewable, sustainable materials. We felt like that was a big white space. And then we were like, okay, can we go get a supply chain that can scale up what we want to do to a million pairs of shoes? That was our, our big aspiration. So if we could get there, all right, we're good to go. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, um, we got conviction on that too. So at that point it took a little less diligence because, you know, shoes are a market that have been around since people have had feet. And so it doesn't, you know, it's often easier, I think, to start a business where there's an existing market than when you're trying to create something brand new and change customers' behaviors. That's a really hard thing to do. So there's not a huge amount of diligence to ask a question, if you make a great shoe, will someone buy it? Like the Mm -hmm. answer is just yes, they're buying eight pairs a year. Americans are at least Mm -hmm. per capita. So so I think we had that answer already. And then it was whether there was this marketing white space and, and grew just a lot of conviction around that and decided that it was big enough to to um, finance it with money that was looking for big-time returns. Yeah. Before we get to the money, and we are going to get there, I want to first ask you and, 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 and for your reflection on Tim's views as well, what, what conviction did you have that you would have any kind of sustainable advantage in this business? I mean, once you've seen the basic idea, as we've pointed out, it's an incredibly simple product. Yeah. And so it would not be hard. And in fact, you've seen your competitors come in yeah. uh, to basically do what you're doing. Not as well, not exactly the same, but what convinced you that you could have sustainable advantage? Yeah, I think it's such an interesting question. Um, and we did reflect on that really early. Uh, obviously, we, we had to think, okay, we have we have an innovation in wool. We, we have a, a shoe that we think is going to be great. We never thought that that one shoe or that one innovation would stand the test of time. Sure. And, and no one has copied us very well, but I think today I just found out about our seventh copycat. Yeah. And, and it's, only, it's only been 18 months. It's, it's crazy how fast the industry moves. So, you know, I, I'm not sitting here worried about that because from day one, we knew that our sustainable advantage was going to be building a brand that people trusted and recognized. And the way we thought we were going to build a brand was going to be about innovating consistently and delivering new experiences for people and making amazing shoes and, and, and other products out of highly renewable materials that other companies had ignored. And from my background, I knew that there was a whole host of opportunities that had not been explored. And I mean, there, there's things almost just sitting on the shelf from other industries <clears throat> that can be applied into the footwear industry or other industries mm-hmm. where, where you can take those things that all these companies have ignored because they're focusing on something else and make a great experience for consumers with something really renewable. And that's the way we thought we should, all consumer products companies should, should be operating and manufacturing. And so once we, once we felt like the opportunity to innovate uh, and we had a pipeline from day one of like four or five hero components, uh, we figured we could keep this train rolling because we had one innovation. We could expand the line um, and extend the line on different silhouettes from that one innovation, which we've started to do. And then we come out with new material innovations and then expand those lines and, and constantly reinventing ourselves and thinking about every little competitive barrier that we have as, as a little moat. And you think of concentric rings that you're building these moats around. And once you build enough of those concentric rings around, now you have something where you have a really sustained advantage because now people don't think of you as 
a wool shoe company or a shoe company even, they think of you as an innovator. Mm-hmm. And they think about, about you as a company that delivers on their promise every time and you just want to keep buying what they come out with next. Mm-hmm. I think there's some great examples out in the world. Like Apple is a, a wonderful example of doing exactly that, which is why you see lines around the block for what they put out every time they do it. So I, I think we, we always knew that that was the case. So from day one, we started building the pipeline. We're slowly and methodically unpacking that. You don't want to go too fast because um, barely anyone knows about our company yet. So let's not let's not go <laughs> spill spill it all at once. Um, and 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 that's that's what we we're trying to build. And we layer on top of that. We layer a little quirky personality, um, and we have a, we have a lot of illustrated language. We do a lot of fun stuff with our brand. We are, uh, I think, if in a word, I would have to describe our brand as irreverent, and that brand is is irreverent because we're doing something that's really austere in design and really simple, but at the same time, we we do not take ourselves seriously whatsoever. And there's cute sheeps running around. There's there's fun stuff when you order a box from us. Uh, we have a really cool uh, package that that comes with a unique design, and that's in the email. It's packed by a little illustrated sheep to, sh- to let you know it's on the way. So, you know, we've really focused on making sure that the personality comes out and that while we're doing something that we feel is really serious and important in the world, we do it quite whimsically. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's been the important thing to help build this defensible business. Yeah. Well, it's a good answer. And I, I really like the metaphor of concentric circles. But to underscore, I think in this kind of business, many consumer facing businesses, all you have is brand. And that's really but the good news is if you can build brand, it really is defensible. It yeah. is a real asset. I want to now turn to financing because they're really tied together in some ways. Um, I, you raised, if, I, if Crunchbase is to believe, be believed, you raised a very large seed round, at least what I would consider to be a large seed round. Uh, Crunchbase says $2.7 million. And I know from a prior conversation that you had nothing at that point. You had a PowerPoint deck, basically. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about that. How do you raise two point seven million dollars before you have anything? And what was the what was this what what was the pitch to investors? So, and we didn't we didn't have compl- just a piece of paper. To be fair, we had um, we had a little data from a Kickstarter, which like Tim, Tim had been working on. Tim, this. Had, Tim yeah. had worked on it previously, and so so about um, a year and a half before there was a Kickstarter campaign that showed a three days worth of sales data. Yeah, so you know it's something, and it was actually important. But had he actually <clears throat> fulfilled it? Yeah, he had fulfilled it. Oh yeah, he did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Early iteration, wildly different from what we have okay. today. But it's, right. you know, the idea was was sold in a video that we we could show to people. So we, yeah. we did have something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that was important. Um, you know, to be, um, it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a weird topic a little bit, but I do think that raising two and a half million dollars in a seed round is, that is a lot of money. Oh yeah. And, and I think people used to call it series A and now they call it seed just so that the series A guys can take the lower risk and, and still call it a series A. But, um, and and that's just a fact of how how much money is flooded into venture capital, but you know my I, I've done I've I've led pretty interesting businesses in the renewable side. Um, I've inve- I've done some investing. I've done some consulting. I'm an engineer by background, and I went to went to Wharton, 
all, all that. So but let's be clear about what you didn't say. But you had never designed a shoe. Yeah. You had never sold a shoe. You'd never done anything consumer. Yeah, right? but but you know yeah. what? I, I will I will say that um, I, I come from a background that I, I would say it's a it's a it's an interesting good background. I've never made a shoe. Um, I'm also uh, I've got a lot of good relationships. I went to a pedigreed school, and I'm a white guy, and I've a known quantity. Mm. And I think that it can't be understated how um, how much that matters. Just is the ovarian lottery. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much. Yeah. And, and I do I I do think that um, I, I'm not going to pat myself on the back and say that this was all me or all right. Tim. This is um, who also happens to be a white guy, um, right. eleven days older than me. Uh, so, he, you know, look, it, we have really good relationships and some of the most important relationships are ones that came from my undergrad in Wharton mm-hmm. and, and, uh, some of my, my best friends and mentors are guys like the, like the four gents who started Warby Parker. Mm-hmm. And those guys were instrumental in guiding me in the early days and introducing me to a few people. We raised, um, we raised our first round of, of money led by a group called Lair Hippow and Ben Lair. Um, uh, as the name would indicate, he's one of the key guys there. And, and I think he's got one of the best sniffers on the planet for mm-hmm. consumer businesses in a way that's almost, uh, it's eerie how, how good he is at, at sniffing out a good deal before even the entrepreneur knows sometimes. Uh, and, and those connections all came through that kind of background. So I don't want to understate, um, look, we did some really good things and, yeah. we, and we put together a really good package. But I don't want to understate how important that is. And I think it's, something that I'm pretty passionate about. And if I help out other entrepreneurs, I, I like to really help out people who don't come from mm-hmm. um, my look and feel and my background. And, and that's, um, that's a, I think, an important thing not to overlook. All right. Um, I, I respect that. That's all super interesting. But you still had to make a pitch to, to Ben Lair. So, yes. so what was that pitch? What did you tell him? You know, the pitch, I, I got to say, um, I wish I could, uh, I, I like the stories when people say like, oh, we pivoted like four times. Yeah. And blah, from when, when we cooked the lamb stew in my house in Mill Valley <laughs> and we came up with an idea, I would say there was a few tweaks on that, but I still use the same pitch deck that we used yeah. for, for Ben Lair and, and Taylor Green and the other guys at Lair Hip Out. I, I use that same pitch deck in talks that I give all the time because it, we have, we have, we have put our heads down and we have executed yeah. against the strategy. And look, we, we get lots of data and we do yeah. lots of tweaks yeah. here and there. Um, we told them we were going to make an incredibly comfortable shoe. It was going to take away a little bit of the logos and it was all going to be based on renewable materials. Mm-hmm. And we said, here's what we're going to do first. We're going to do it direct to consumer only. Mm-hmm. We're going to make brick and mortar stores mm-hmm. and we're going to um, tap into this market that is absolutely enormous. What we didn't know at the time was that there had never been a direct-to-consumer shoe business. And what I mean by that is a manufacturer, designer and manufacturer right. of shoes that vertically integrates and sells to, to customers that had reached any scale. Right. We didn't know how rare air this was at the time. We are now in rare air in, in the sense that we're, we're probably, best I can estimate, one of the largest, if not the largest, direct-to-consumer consumer shoe company. And... Um, we, we kind of intimated towards that that was our strategy, but we yeah. didn't quite know how challenging that was and th- what the market does in, in response to that with these knockoffs and things like that. So I think we probably didn't quite understand the challenge also, but the opportunity. So now that we've kind of clarified that it, it becomes even more interesting. Yeah. And, and there had been, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned Warby Parker. It's quite amazing. They were all your, your classmates. Davis Smith also is a group mm-hmm. of amazing entrepreneurs your year. Yeah, good group. And, and. In some ways, Warby pioneered uh, some of this, right? It was this idea you could take something that 
people would traditionally say was very hard to sell direct yeah. and sell it direct. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think the Bonobos guys, you'd want to throw them in yeah. there too. And, yeah. and there's, I mean, there's the idea of, of vertical integration is, is nothing new now because mm -hmm. Bonobos, Warby, like a bunch of trailblazers did some right. very special stuff in right. 2008 to 2011. Um, there was no technology available for those guys to do that at the time either. So they had right. to build so much by right. scratch. And, uh, and we got to start this in 2015. So we, we kind of ported their business model yeah. into shoes. And, and so there was no, there was no sex appeal when we're pitching investors that were a direct to consumer business, cutting out the middleman. Like we never said that once yeah. where that was, <laughs> that had been established, that had been established. And, and the reason we were doing that was because it made sense in the market, not because yeah. that was the innovation. Mm -hmm. It just, that's a, good business strategy for us right now in shoes because everyone is selling to retailers that are struggling. So, um, so that, that, that was not the pitch, but it was, it was a feature of the pitch and, and we're executing on that in a way that's very disciplined right yeah. now. That's a great, I great. I love hearing when, when there's been no pivot. I mean, that so just far. shows you were I mean, we're, we're still, we're still yeah, early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I want to, I want to drill down on another point about the approach you took. I, um, you were, our listeners don't know this, but I'll tell them that you were kind enough to speak to my students yesterday. And so I'm going to invoke something you said there. I'll do it in general terms, hopefully not violating any confidentiality. But you said that you had spent a big chunk of change, more than $100,000, maybe more than $200,000 on mm -hmm. branding and identity. Mm -hmm. um, I found that shocking. No startup I've ever heard of takes the first you know, ten percent, let's say, of their of the of of their of their uh, of their financing, and puts it against brand. Um, that's the kind of thing that Nike would do, or that a big company would do. Mm -hmm. They would put that kind of budget and that kind of effort against brand. Do you think there's something about that that this business effectively required that you come at it? as if you had a lot of resources and you were doing it right the first time. Yes. As opposed to the more scrappy, you know, hire somebody on a website to do you a logo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, look, you, there's a lot of talk in, in this town in particular about minimum viable yeah. product. Yeah. Rip it out. Get it out there as fast as you can so you fail quickly. Right. I wanted to fail quickly, too, if we were going to fail. But it's a very different thing. Um, what I want in, in the, the experiment that we were doing to figure out whether we were going to get so-called product market fit right. um, required in our minds that we, uh, we, we put our best foot forward so that the, the idea could truly be tested with a mm -hmm. broad group of consumers. And the only way we felt we could do that was to make an incredible product right out of the gate. And, and we really feel like we did do that. And, and since that, we've changed it 27 times. Mm -hmm. Like it's been 18, 19 months now, and it's we've changed it 27 times. That shoe has been altered in our in our manufacturing process. Mostly, it's it's been small things, sometimes bigger. But but when we started, we had to make something we were really proud of, and we had to match that with a brand that stood for something and and gave a very crisp and clear message to consumers. And it, look, if you can sit here and say, if if an investor says to you, "What's the one thing that's going to make you survive the test of time and become an enduring company?" And you say brand, well, you better spend some money on that. Thing. Yeah, like you gotta make the investment. So yeah, we, we were almost twenty percent uh, of of our of our initial budget was um, we ended up spending on brand, and and um, I think every dollar was worth it. Yeah, and I'm just gonna underscore something. So twenty percent 
would be $540,000. Uh, let's, I don't know if it was that much. 2.7 2. is a little high, I think, okay. actually. It was right. two and a quarter. All right, two and a quarter. Okay, so still. Call 400, 400, 400, I don't remember exactly. I mean, it's a shockingly like large amount of money. Yeah. That's a big company budget for that for that yeah. kind of thing. And um, But it's it's quite notable. Yeah, if you're going to be, if it's going to be about brand, you better not be all hyphen bird dot net or something like that right. i mean you better own your domain Correct. you better have a distinctive identity and you better look like a million bucks coming Correct. out of the gate that's yeah. absolutely right yeah. like if you're going to start a big data company would you not hire an engineer <laughs> exactly You'd hire an engineer yeah. they're yeah. expensive yeah yeah okay good point and and a nice one for us to underscore for our for our listeners okay let's turn to the remarkable success you had in actually getting this thing launched so you raised capital in spring of 2016 and you were shipping product within six seven months, months. Seven months. Yep. How'd you get that done? Yeah. Wow. It was, that was the most stressful period um, of our company by a long stretch. Uh, just kind of a, a funny little story. We, we, um, so we raised this money. I think it was two and a quarter at the time. And then we added some debt, which mm. probably adds up to 2.7. Um, and, and, um, and we told all these investors that we were going to manufacture in Eastern Europe. It was actually in Transylvania. Or what was no way. Yeah. Yeah. And no one asked us any questions, so we were like, "All right, that's cool." They didn't. They didn't um, <laughs> think that was a bad move. So then, and, and we didn't ask our factory too many questions at the time because we kind of didn't want to know the answers. And you mean like uh, prison labor, that sort of thing? Well, less that, <laughs> more, more just like whether they could actually make a shoe for us and whether they wow. would do it on yeah. time and yeah. and within a reasonable cost structure. Um, and we'd gotten some pro forma from them, and we'd penciled it all out, but. Um, it was a little half baked. So we called them the day after we got two and a quarter million bucks in the bank and, and we're about to plan a visit and they gave us their revised, um, revised budget for the shoe. Yeah. And it was, it was completely outrageous and they were, they were not, not a good manufacturer for us. So, um, uh, fast forward about, about, um, four weeks and I was standing with, uh, with, the um, with an older Italian gentleman that we hired as a consultant in the streets of Busan, Korea, evaluating three different factories that we found through just being really scrappy and using our network to find find different um, owners of factories and agents and whatnot, and um, and we 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 had uh, three boxes of tech packs as we call them in the in the industry in the shoe industry with the last and the bottom piece of the shoe and some patterns for the upper and some rolls of fabric, and we said, show us the factory. Here's your box. Go make us a shoe. Mm. And um, and uh, we created just this little horse race. And and a gentleman named Michael Joe, SS Joe, as many in the shoe industry know him, uh, d- got our box and stood out so far and away beyond the rest of the the groups that we'd found, and had a level of work ethic, professionalism, um, straightforwardness that was just unbelievably admirable, and one of the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, and he's now our head of manufacturing, and, um, and and so was he an agent, or was he he was running a, a factory? He, he wasn't in the in the in the traditional sense not an agent, but he he worked on as a liaison on behalf of the factory. He was like mm-hmm. a business development person yeah. for the yeah. factory, so not quite an agent as yeah. they would broker lots of factories. But yeah, it, more or less that was the relationship. He was paid from the factory mm-hmm. off of our off of our, and um, then you hired him. Yeah, yeah. And we took him, and we need him. And now we have a team of, um, I think, five people underneath him in in, a, in our office in in Busan, Korea. And uh, that was pretty damn stressful. But let me let's just underscore that process. So, 
you actually you're super lucky because you dodged a bullet on the first one because that almost certainly would have ended badly. The very badly. Yeah. So, but then the the approach in Korea was network your way into the set of people who could plausibly uh, make this thing. Yeah. And then you do a little bake off. Yeah. So you get you get some evidence of whether how they're going to be to work together, what their level of enthusiasm is, and can they do it? And this is very long lead time stuff. I mean, you need to in our business we need to spend a lot of money, um, you know, close to $100,000 out of the gate on tooling. Mm-hmm. Um, for this is use, the molds for, yeah. for, sh- for the soles exactly. and so forth, yeah. For, yeah. So the bottoms yeah. parts. And and that takes a long time, and mm-hmm. you need to get it right. So you need to test it before you make the whole size run. And when you do that, like, you need to go with a great person, and you also need to do that well in advance in order to hit a deadline to launch a shoe. Um, and I think my proudest moment pre-launch was that we shipped our first order uh, we, we, our first PO was, um, 10,000 pairs and we had five, five more thousand on the back of that just for safety in case we, we sold through fast and which is, which is quite a lot. Everyone told us that was way too much, probably three times too much, um, which we ignored that advice, thankfully. And, and, um, we put that first 10,000 pair order on a boat, which was fantastic. And then 90% of the orders after that, we had to put on airplanes, which was horrible. Uh, okay, so let's back up. I want to I want to uh, <coughs> underscore a, a couple points here. So the first the first question is, how do you convince a factory? Presumably, it's a pretty good factory mm-hmm. making for some big companies. Presumably, how do you convince them to take an order for ten thousand pairs? Yeah, tr- you know, it's I, I think in hindsight, I didn't know how uh, how smart what we'd done was, and and at the time, it was just pure lucky. Um, now I look, now it looks smart, uh, but we found. We focused on Korea for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which, though, was that the, all the huge factories had long gone. They went to China and then Vietnam and Indonesia, lower cost labor regions. It, Korea is still where a lot of the innovation happens. Ah, interesting. And so we went there and we knew we could command the attention with a smaller order. If you go to a huge factory in a in a place where there where the bulk of manufacturing is done today. It's real. You get you get Which treated very South, poorly. Southeast Asia now is it yeah. is it Vietnam predominantly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's you know you get booted out if you get a big order from another customer. The factory just boots you out. And yeah, says up. Oh, you're going to wait another yeah. month, and you have, you can't do anything. Your whole launch plan is screwed. Yeah. So we got the attention really quickly. This factory that we chose isn't a superb factory. They had a number of clients. They've now kicked out all their other clients. Wow. And we're an exclusive um, customer of theirs. Um, so we employ about. 350 people in Korea wow. on behalf of our company. No, yeah. not, not on yeah. our payroll, but um, all dedicated to, to producing our, our product. And that is um, that's something we're really proud of. It's a really great region. Everyone is treated exceptionally well. The wage rates are high. Um, and we get the benefit of having decades of experience of worth of quality into every single shoe that's that's yeah. produced. You know, uh, on that point, I'm, uh, uh, I, I bet you read Shoe Dog. Yeah, every employee at my company does. Yeah, so that's the Phil Knight autobiography. One of the, I found that book quite moving, mm-hmm. actually, and one of the most yeah. moving parts was when he talks about the impact he's had, uh, that Nike has had in, in developing economies in terms of their employment. Uh, so I, I like the way you framed that. They don't have to be on your payroll for you to have uh, made a difference. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely yeah. not. I mean, we, we hold high standards, though. Yeah. So every every one of our factories that works with us has to has to live up to a set of standards that we are proud of as if it were our own company. Mm-hmm. So that, that, there's no sacrificing on that. Right. And I think the impact is huge. Yeah. It's all across our supply chain. We have, um, we have about 40 warehouse employees um, in Nashville, that, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, 
which uh, work on our behalf, and that's a that's those are all exclusive to to Allbirds, and and we're really proud of how those people are treated, and and we treat them just like family, like they're a part of our company. Yeah, yeah. So you alluded before I we we start talking about about the factory. You you alluded to some of the challenges in managing the supply chain. So you had placed that ten thousand order uh, unit order. You'd gotten it on the boat. And just so our listeners understand, effectively what you're doing, it you're loading it into a shipping container, and then you're waiting five weeks, yeah. something like that, uh, for it to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the reason you said that's good is because it only costs you low environmental impact, low cost, and it's, uh, it means you know, we planned well. Tens of cents yeah. per pair to get it yeah. to get here. Putting on an airplane it costs many dollars. And what? So why would you do that? Uh, if you're chasing demand and right. we were in the fortunate position of where, you know, during that, the, you asked about what we did during launch and I focused on making shoes, mm. which was, which was really hard, but we also built a brand identity and personality and a website and infrastructure to support, um, customers to call us when we had to pick up the phone once, once we sold things and, and we spent an enormous amount of time working with the media to get our message out there. And that was really how we thought we could make a real test of this to see that product market fit. So we went out and spent a month meeting with people in the media uh, and, and we gave them a pair of shoes and we told them the story and we said, write about it if you like it. Yeah. And, and a lot of people wrote about it. Okay. Hold on. I want to interrupt you because I get this question all the time. It's one of the hardest questions I get. How do you get in, get, get the attention of the media? How'd you guys do it? Oh, I mean, we, we, I think you got to pay for these relationships. Like there's good PR firms out there that have relationships with people in the media. Mm-hmm. And it's a very symbiotic relationship because people, journalists want to write about newness and PR firms want to represent new companies. Mm-hmm. And so you got to have a broker there. And so we got a great PR firm and, and we, um, and we, 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 they helped us. And then now we've taken and built our own PR team and building our own relationships. Yeah. But. So just to underscore that, uh, just as you took a big company approach to the brand and identity, you basically took a big company approach to PR. As brand, well. PR, and product. Yeah, those are the areas where we we said there's absolutely zero skimping on on investment. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's a tough lesson, but it's it, it, yeah, it's the truth. Yeah. So so yeah. good to have it. Uh, all right. Um, I interrupted you. You were saying you got, so you got this media attention. Yeah. So we got it yeah. and we were, we were, um, we were in the good fortune time magazine called us the most comfortable shoe in the world on our launch day. We got on the ah. today show, you know, we got, it was good. It was good stuff. Yeah. And, and we were pretty scrappy about how we went about it and got that stuff, uh, beyond, beyond just working with a PR firm. And, uh, and so we, we had that and, and, you know, we sold through, uh, a bunch of, we sold through our first PO very quickly, and and that ended up being wait. So the stuff is on the water, and you've already sold it, basically. No, no, we we had it in warehouse you before. Did. That's okay. why I was so yeah. proud of it. Yeah, we actually it meant that we planned really well and yeah. we hit our timeline. Yeah. Um, no, it was in our warehouse, and and we sold it, and we delivered within three four days. Yeah, and then we sold through, and then and then um, and this is all direct to consumer. Yeah, yeah. So you can't predict what that what right. the hell is going to happen, and so then then um, we started cutting off orders. We just stopped selling. And someone called me and they're like, what are you doing? Put, put, you're losing, you know how hard it is to acquire customers? I was like, what do you mean? We just got a bunch. We just sold through. Like you have, you're losing every single person that comes to your website right now. You got to put a back order on, like take, start taking names at minimum, but start selling shoes. What are you doing? What were you doing? You were being an idiot. So we were being, we were being idiots. And so we, we, we ended up started taking back orders then. And then we were selling shoes that were still in Asia. And so we, um, 
So, so, so then we now we you're had, flying them. Now we're flying. Yeah. <laughs> we're, getting, we're still getting taking a long time to get to customers, and that's something we've now we've now uh, long since rectified. But that it did take us a while. Well, there's only one way to rectify that, which is to is to carry inventory. That's why we have 40 people and 40,000 square feet in a in a warehouse in Nashville. Yeah, but that's that's important lesson for you. If you're going to sell direct, uh, you better have that product in stock. And 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 so that's that that's the challenge. Yeah. Um, You know, there's a there's some else. We just have a minute or so left. But but yeah, you broke a lot of rules. So for instance, one of the rules you broke was you need to have a bunch of styles. The other rule you broke was you need to have half sizes. Uh, what was your thinking about about breaking those rules? Yeah, yeah. Almost every one of our decisions um, was about what's going to be a better customer experience if we make this decision. Uh, I think you named a couple that there's like you know when you jump on a website and it says give us your email and we'll give you a ten percent discount. That's not good for the customer. That's really good for the mm-hmm. company because they're going to spam you after that and try to get you to buy more. We decided not to do that. We we said. You walk into a shoe store. There's 200 styles. We're gonna give you one, so that's we're gonna give you a solution. Um, the half size thing is interesting. We we originally really designed that because we thought we had a comfortable enough shoe that was stretchy and you didn't need to run a marathon in it, so you, it could accommodate a lot of feet sizes. Uh, we also were thinking about working capital, and and every time you add a different skew um, into your mix, you're gonna increase your working capital. So we wanted to keep that as low as we could, and so we said no half sizes, and that's been been wonderful and we've got a really low return rate because of that which is pretty important for our business all right and in the last 20 seconds we have how did you have to pay for the domain alberts we did we had a 10-week awful negotiation with a man named edward in the midwest that was (laughs) a birder and he wanted to sell some binoculars and and um oh my god he said he said one number we said a much 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 lower number and we ended up paying him very close to what he asked for Oh, funny. All right. Well, Joey, these are great stories. We're very much looking forward to seeing what other rules you break and following your success. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You can learn more about Allbirds at their website. It's just allbirds.com. Whatever you paid, it was worth it. Or follow them on Twitter at Allbirds. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.